Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm here for a second time with Dr. Iris Berendt. Uh, she's professor of psychology at North, Northeastern University in the US. Her research examines the nature of linguistic competence, its origins and its interaction with reading ability. She is the author of The Phonological Mind and, more recently, The Blind Storyteller, How We Reason About Human Nature, and that's the book we're going to focus on today. So, Dr. Barron, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. On the show. It's all, always a pleasure to talk to you. So. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. I'm delighted to join you. Okay, great. So uh, let's talk a little bit first about the main thesis of your book. So what would you say uh, you tried to show there in terms of how people think and reason about our psychology, about our human nature and things like that? Certainly. So we, uh, by which I mean lay people, we really would like to think that we have a pretty good understanding of who we really are, who is our nature, where our thoughts and feelings come from. And it turns out that we are actually wrong in significant ways. So for example, if you ask people, what do you think infants know? Do you think they have a notion of number? Do they know that one plus one is two? Do they know that helping others is good? Do they know anything about language? Do they know that blah is a better syllable potentially than uba? When we ask these questions to lay people, they tell you no way. There's no way infants know this. And research actually suggests that they do. Now, Interestingly, for emotions, we make the opposite mistake. So here, people say that they are certain that emotions, facial emotions, are innate and that you can recognize them immediately on, on the face and the body. And research here suggests that actually you don't. So people are really systematically wrong about who we are. They think that our cold cognitions are must be learned. They appear not to. Um, for our more warm emotions, people here are convinced that they are in, imprinted on the bodies and they are inborn. And that too is controversial. So the question that I'm asking in this book is, why are we wrong about who we are? Why we essentially are blind to our human nature? And the culprit, I suggest, may very much well lie in human nature itself, in the very core principles that make our mind tick. And uh, I suggest that this has quite broad consequences. It really can meddle, you know, mess up with our scholarship. It can interfere with science, with our understanding of the brain. It can mess up with social matters, such as you know, it can promote biases towards psychiatric disorder. It can implant beliefs in uh, the afterlife. And all those false stories, our view of ourselves, are wrong probably because we, the storyteller, um, is born blind. Uh, okay, so, so I, I guess that we could say that this also has something to do with the so-called nature-nurture debate, right? And in this case, you refer in your book to the empiricist-nativist debate. That's how you frame it. So yeah. what, what is this debate really about? And do you think that people are also wrong in how they think about things in that manner, in that manner or, or not? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
the debate goes back uh, thousands of years back, right? So we know uh, that uh, the debate concerns the origin of knowledge. So the question is, you think about abstract concepts such as an object. Where does a notion such that like that come from? And uh, empiricists, the British empiricists, for example, tell you that uh, knowledge is obtained from experience. The rationalist alternative going back to Plato indeed suggests that knowledge uh, is innate. Now, um, th th this uh, research in infant cognition actually suggests that uh, Plato's views were actually uh, pretty much on the right track. So uh, the psychologist Elizabeth Spelke has suggested that infants are born with some notions of core knowledge that uh, uh, actually have some parallels with um, animals. Um, her, uh, she suggests that chronology includes, for example, our early understanding of objects, um, some notions about the social world, a rudimentary capacity to understand number. Um, other thinkers, uh, for example, Chomsky, talk about um, universal grammar as innate set of principles of language. Uh, Steven Pinker refers to it as the language instinct. Um, there's a slightly different proposal. So Spelke's uh, claim is that our core knowledge includes principles that have continuity in, in animal cognition. So animals show many of these cognitions, uh, of these principles. Um, uh, in the case of language, this seems to be um, largely a unique human capacities, but in both cases, these capacities are inborn. They include principles, abstract ideas that are inborn in humans. And those ideas really determine our early understanding of the world. So these are the prisms through which we understand and construct our understanding. And that understanding, in fact, can be quite distinct from the one that is given to us by our senses, for instance. Mm -hmm. Right. And let's, let me just ask you one question about this so-called core knowledge. Um, when, when people refer to it, they are not really referring to something that is explicit or conscious, right? I mean, this, this knowledge is basically subconscious and implicit. It, it has to do with some sort of uh, algorithmic calculations that occur there and that babies uh, information from the environment that babies uh, process in predetermined ways let's say exactly so yeah absolutely this is tacit knowledge these are not explicit principles and indeed we see many of them in newborn infants and in non-linguistic animals so clearly these are not verbal principles um perhaps a couple of examples will help clarify these notions if you think this this is helpful. Um, so, for example, one example is the notion of an object, right? So, um, Spelke suggests that infants think about an object as a bound whole rather than as a set of parts. So, to think about a concrete example, if you had an infant, a newborn infant that would only see their mother's their mother through the rail uh, of the crib. So they only see, you know, her, uh, say, head and they see her leg, but they never see her um, uh, torso. So they don't know that these two facts are, that it to, these two parts are in fact connected. And the question is, what does the infant conclude? Do they conclude that their mother consists of two parts 
or, or do they consist uh, or that she is a whole um, uh, object, a whole body, so to speak. And uh, researchers examined this question looking at newborns and to examine that they would present newborns with an object, say, this is my object, but it's occluded behind something else and it's moving behind it. And the question is, does the infant think that the object is this or just the two parts? Um, to find out, researchers compared the two possibilities and it turns out that newborns are in fact surprised to see the two parts suggesting that they inspect, in, in, in fact, um, expect the full uh, object. Uh, similar research was done in chicks, for example, with the same conclusion. So it suggests that our notion of the object is given by the principle of cohesion distinct from what the senses are giving us because in this example the infant had no uh, sensory evidence that in fact the torso exists mm -hmm. yeah uh, so and what lay people think about this is that they tend to associate ideas or knowledge with something that we get from our environments, right? That is information that we get from other people. And so it is more of an empiricist approach that yes. lay people usually have to this, correct? Yes, yes, indeed. So we have, uh, perhaps I should tell you, uh, put it in uh, in the context of my own research. So uh, we got, I got interested in this question of what people think, how people think about the origins of knowledge, um, partly due to my own frustration explaining the notion of universal grammar to lay people. And it's one thing to say, I don't believe in un that universal grammar exists, you don't have the right evidence to show it, which is totally a logical claim to make. But my sense was that people people's worry with the notion is not so much with the evidence, but rather with the question itself. And that prompts me to go and, you know, I said, okay, I'm a cognitive scientist, I have the tools, let's find out what people actually think. Let's present them with either abstract ideas, uh, including uh, uh, notions of sentence structure or the notion of what is an object. Uh, in fact, let's present them with the experiments that have been done on infants and ask them to predict what do you think um, infants and people would know in the absence of experience. And what we found is a rather nuanced answer. So it is not the case that people think that no aspects of the psyche are innate. People are perfectly happy to accept that emotions are innate. In fact, they are positively biased to think that emotions are innate, even when we give them evidence to the contrary. But when it comes to ideas, to abstract concepts such as, you know, and ideas that in fact have been documented in across cultures, in, uh, suggesting that they are good candidates of being innate, um, those uh, so notions such as having a concept of a person, having uh, forming sentences, keeping track of time, um, here people say that these are not innate, uh, even when uh, we present them evidence to the contrary. Um, they say the same, in fact, when we de describe to them the experiments that were done in infants and ask them to predict, what do you think infants would do? Will they show a notion of an object? And they say, no way. When we present them with, do you think that infants will prefer happy faces to angry faces? They're sure, yeah, they're, they have no problem with that. But it's specifically the notion of ideas that they have troubles with. Um, they, even when we ask them about birds or aliens. So even if we contrasted um, 
an abstract structure of the bird's song. We told them birds always have this particular structure. They begin with one note A, they end with another note B. There is anything in the middle that's actually true um, for this one sparrow song. And we compare that with uh, specific motor behaviors, such as the manner in which they uh, move their head. And then we told them, scientists actually think that both behaviors are inborn. So tell me, if we're going to take an egg and raise it in isolation, do you think that uh, the bird will manifest these behaviors? And they were reliably more likely to accept the motor behavior as inborn compared to, uh, to the abstract knowledge concerning sound structure. They said the same even to when we told them about aliens, right? So it looks like they are really systematically and selectively um, resistant to the notion of innate ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and another interesting question here is, we've already talked about core knowledge, about people's uh, intuitions about, or ideas about uh, how, where our knowledge stems from, uh, our ideas, basically. But uh, is it the case that uh, people are also predisposed or because of their core knowledge to think this way? I mean, to think that ideas tend to be uh, obtained in an empirical way and emotions are innate and things like that. Right, so indeed the novel claim in this book is the uh, assertion that these biases might very well arise from core knowledge itself. Um, perhaps before we go there, uh, maybe we consider other explanations for why people might be uh, biased in this manner. So the possibility that people are uh, empiricist has not gone unnoticed. Several people have thought that something like that might be going on, although until recently this has not actually been investigated uh, in a systematic way. And one possibility is, you know, people might just, they might be innocently ignorant. They may not just, they don't know better. Uh, they also have a lot of experiences with learning themselves. So they know that they learn math in school. So they think that the notion of number therefore must be learned. Um, I think this is certainly there is something to it. I do not say that this is wrong. I just think it's insufficient to explain what's going on because you certainly learn motor skills too. You learn swimming, you learn how to swim. So that's not exclusively, it doesn't exclusively apply to ideas. Um, also, people resist innateness even for animals and aliens on which they know very little or at least certainly less than what they know about humans. And furthermore, people resist the notion of innate ideas even when you give them explicit evidence that the trait in question is innate. So all those lead me to think that it's not just that they know don't know better, but they actually are actively biased in this way. Steven Pinker in The Blank Slates uh, actually entertained the possibility that our trouble with nativism is not just uh, passive, uh, uh, but rather an active aversion to nativism. But as I read him, I think that for him, the main motivation is really the concerns with the social consequences of, of nativism. So if you and I are born different, then perhaps there is room for discrimination and, and, and worse, right? So, um, so it's really the social concerns that drive that. 
And while I think he's totally right, and people are in fact, in fact concerned in this manner, the question then arises: Why you should care about ideas? So if you're, why should you know worrying about the notion of an object lead to any social, you know, implications? So I think he's totally right, but it does not explain what needs to be explained here, namely why the resistance is specifically to ideas. Mm-hmm. So my proposal is that. You know, the aversion really is selective to ideas. People are not generally uh, averse to all form of nativism, and it's not a social stance, but rather it really arises from our nature. And I think it arises from two intuitive principles of core cognition, or rather two fundamental principles of cognition that are grounded in core cognition. And those are intuitive dualism and intuitive essentialism. Um, so could, could you explain perhaps those concepts? Because sure. I guess that most people are not familiar with them. So, Of course. So Paul Bloom in a wonderful book, The Cards Baby, uh, suggests that we are all uh, we are all essentially the cards babies in the sense that we are intuitive dualists. We think about our, the mind as immaterial and distinct from the material body. Yeah. And this theory is supported by experimental evidence that demonstrate dissociations between situations in which people are invited to think about what happens when you replicate the body and what happens when you replicate the mind. So if I were to replicate you, Ricardo, and there's going to be a second Ricardo, how, what of the, your original traits will transfer to that second uh, creature? And what people say is, yes, he's going to have the same hair and he's going to have the same beard and so forth and the same eyes, but he may not know where you live and he may not remember when you were born and all those psychological traits will not transfer. On the other hand, if we're going to switch minds and you're going to get my mind somehow, then you will get all my psychological properties. You will remember where I was born and what I know, and you'll write the the blind storyteller, uh, but not you, you're not going to look like me. So this dissociation suggests that uh, mental and uh, people think uh, about uh, properties of the mind as body and body as distinct. And it doesn't look like this is just a Western thing. So um, there is evidence from small scale mind opaque societies, societies in which it's not polite to talk about the minds of others, that shows that uh, people still distinguish minds and body. Um, really beautiful experiment by Chudik and colleagues that, that show these um, uh, properties. Um, and indeed, when you think about that, I don't, I'm not saying that it's unlikely, in fact, that dualism itself is innate. I mean, there's no reason why natural selection should care about dualism. However, dualism may very well be grounded in core knowledge in as much that core knowledge systems distinguish between the properties that we assign to objects and those that we assign to agents. So as we mentioned, when newborn infants think about objects, they think that they're, they follow the laws of physics. For example, they move by contact. So, you know, if this is a ball, they expect the ball to move only by contact. They don't expect the same of agents. So if you see a man and a woman, 
uh, and the woman was going to start walking by herself, by herself infants are, are not the least surprised by that. So in fact, they suspend the principles of physical causation, and instead they think that agents um, move by following their mental states, by their goals, by their intentions. And those have been demonstrated in young infants. So it's this association, it's this distinction between these two systems of core knowledge, one that concerns objects and another that concerns agents that could give rise to dualism. Now, dualism can be a problem for the notion of innate ideas because it happens to conflict with the second principle of core knowledge, which is intuitive essentialism. So maybe I can tell you a little bit about what essentialism is and how the conflict arises. Yeah, sure. So uh, intuitive essentialism is the knowledge that guides our understanding of living things and their innate properties. So we think that a dog is what it is because it is born with some innate immutable essence. And there is a large literature that shows that. Mm -hmm. When you read this literature very carefully, there is further evidence that people think about the essence as material, as a piece mm -hmm. of matter. So for example, when young children are asked, uh, shown a little dog and they ask, why is the dog brown like its mother? The answer that they give is the dog inherited, a, they didn't, don't say inherited, but the dog has this little piece of matter that they got from the, from the mother, which suggests that, that, that the essence is embodied in some piece of matter. And this is also evident again, again not just in Western kids, but also in, in, um, in small scale societies everywhere. Now, um, if you combine dualism and essentialism together, so people have long known that there is evidence for intuitive dualism and there is evidence for intuitive essentialism. What has not been noticed before is that those two principles are actually in conflict. So if per dualism, knowledge is in the mind, which is immaterial, whereas per essentialism, my innate essence must be material, then it follows that knowledge, which is immaterial, cannot be innate because it cannot satisfy essentialism. And that presents a novel explanation of why in our intuitive mind ideas cannot be innate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, let's apply also those two principles, let's say dualism and essentialism, to try to understand how people think not about ideas now, but about emotions, because there's also an ongoing debate in effective science about, yeah. I mean, people discuss if emotions uh, are innate or if they are in some way uh, learned or acquired yeah. during people's lifetime. So, uh, yeah. and, and I guess that uh, you get people like for example, Yak Panksep studied uh, emotions in mice, for example, and uh, he was one of the pioneers of the field of effective neuroscience, for example. And there are people like Franz Duval that uh, straight out tell you that, um, I mean, that it, it makes no sense for us to think that emotions are not present in other animals like, like our cousin primates and, and others. 
So, I mean, th there are two, two questions here, I guess. The first one is uh, if one of the sides is right and the other is wrong, if it's more complicated than that, and then also uh, our intuitive thinking yeah. about emotions, right? Yeah. So as an external reader of this literature, I don't feel it's my role to solve any of those debates. My contribution, perhaps, would be to tell people, listen, some of the debates and the way you're framing the questions actually mirror how lay people actually, the type of misconception that we see in lay people, and you can draw the conclusions yourself about what that might imply. So just as we, uh, as we mentioned earlier, people think that infants uh, have innate emotions, that they will innately recognize emotions in the face, that emotions are imprinted in the face and in the body. And essentialism provides the explanation for that because if you think that the essence is material, um, emotions satisfy this requirement because in lay people's view at least, emotions manifest in the body. So you can kind of, there is some correlates, perhaps not precise, but there are there is some correlate of my happiness in my face that you can recognize. And that gives you the sense that emotions actually are embodied. And since for essentialism, what's innate is embodied, then by satisfying this requirement, you obtain evidence that emotion perhaps is indeed innate. And in fact, when we ask people, so I, I didn't mention before, but the proposal that I gave about innate ideas, in fact, we did go to the lab and uh, tested each of the legs of the syllogism that I just described for ideas. We did the same also for emotions. So for example, we asked people to predict, will hunter-gatherers recognize emotions universally? So if you, you know you, they saw your faces, they've never seen a Westerner before, would they be able to tell what you're feeling? They, people said yes, of course, and in fact, the more they thought about the emotion as embodied, the more they thought the emotion is likely to be innate. People said that the emotion is going to be innate and recognized by the hunter-gatherer, even if we told them, listen, this emotion is actually learned. Scientists are certain that there is no way these emotions are in our, 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 our people. Uh, Sorry, we told them that scientists are convinced that these emotions are in, uh, are acquired. Uh, people still claim that for basic emotions like anger, disgust, fear, and so forth, that these emotions are in fact innate. So it's kind of interesting when you look at the affective science literature, when you read it, that how the question is framed, right? So um, the original question is, are emotions are innate? But when you read the literature, a lot of that is about do facial manifestations of emotions are these innate or, you know, can you tell emotions in the voice or can you uh, recognize a specific brain area that uh, for anger and so forth. The answer on that is, is very, it's a huge literature and it's hugely debated. So going from the early work of Paul Ekman that suggested that yes, you can recognize emotions universally to more recent work by my colleague Lisa Feldman Barrett that claims that no, this, you know, this emotion recognition is, is not reliable. Um, you can't find any brain area that reliably um, corresponds to anger, say, and so forth. And in mm -hmm. fact, she claims that even in Westerner, you know, you can't even read my um, emotions. So in my mind, the question is not so much who is right, although 
it's it's very complicated but rather the question is why do you frame the question in this manner who cares about whether or not emotions are imprinted universally in the face and, and of course you care but why that is why this is the decisive question and it seems here, uh, and I think that here, the, the uh, proposal that comes from evolutionary psychologists like uh, John Tooby and Leda Kosmidis that claim that emotions are in fact computations make a lot of sense. Um, so my sense of shame, if something shameful happens to me, how much shame I, I feel really depends on my calculation of who saw this event, how, you know, did you see it, or my, you know, or my husband saw it? Uh, how, you know, what was the event exactly, and so forth. So all those suggest that what might be innate may very well be the computation, not necessarily the embodied manifestation of the emotion. And in fact, there is no reason to think that. In some cases, it, it might be even silly to expect that to be innate because why should I manifest innately my shame? I, you know, maybe it's better for me to actually hide that. So um, I, I think it's uh, it, the possibility at least exists that some of the ways in which the question has been formulated in the field of effective science might be in fact due to uh, the, the fingerprint of essentialism, and perhaps this is something that uh, we should take into account when we read this literature. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify this point, because I, I think this is important, when you talk about emotions in your book, because you mentioned there two aspects of it, the computational aspect and yeah. how people uh, manifest their emotions uh, on their body, on their face, and, and so on. Uh, but uh, the other aspect, where sometimes when people talk about emotions, uh, the, the debate gets a little bit complicated because there's also the subjective experience, but that's not included when we talk about emotions, that's uh, feelings, right? Um, the distinction I think that, that uh, we should draw is the one between um, emotions as computations and mm -hmm emotions as embodied manifestations, as, as manifesting the output of those computations in the body. The computations may very well be innate. It's the manifestations that may or may not be innate, but I think it's, um, it might not be prudent to confound the manifestation of the computation with its underlying uh, mechanism, the computation itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let's talk now uh, about other examples about how people apply these intuitive knowledge that we have in our intuitive psychology to other aspects and also to some scientific debates. Like, for example, let's talk about embodied cognition because that's uh, more and more prominent in uh, cognitive psychology and artificial intelligence and other areas. So, uh, why are people so drawn to the suggestion that uh, perhaps many aspects of our cognition are or, or come or have an embodied basis, mm -hmm. let's say? So, perhaps we should talk about what embodied cognition means. Uh, sure. Um, so, the question there is what are how are concepts represented? So, what is my concept of this battle, right? Um, <coughs> And one tradition says that this concept is represented by abstract symbol. Mm -hmm. What the symbol is, we don't know, but 
the proposal is that whatever this symbol is, it is distinct in principle from um, it's arbitrary and it's distinct, say, from my sensory experiences and my motor experiences. The embodied cognition rejects this notion. So on the embodied view, um, my notion of a battle is actually the sum of my sensory and motor interaction with the battle. It's the coldness of the battle. It's the roundness of the battle. It's the weight of the battle. And it's all those sensory and motor capacity and, and uh, experiences that constitute my notion of a battle. And in fact, when I come to think about this battle, the battle, I need to simulate those experiences because that's what it means to think of a battle. So I have to simulate how my hand is going to hold it and so forth. Now, the notion of uh, embodied cognition is actually supported by a large body of evidence. So we do know indeed that people um, have detailed uh, uh, notion of uh, sensory and motor interactions. So for example, people's estimate of how steep a hill is going to be depends on whether or not they, they're wearing a backpack. Um, we know that uh, abstract verbs activate specific motor areas. So we know mm -hmm. that primary motor cortex has distinct representation, say, for the leg and for the arm. But when you hear, uh, or when you hear, or when you read the notion of kick, it's the leg motor area in the brain that is active. When you read peak, it's the arm or the hand motor uh, area that is um, active. And furthermore, you can stimulate those areas in TMS and show uh, systematic effects on understanding. So one reason why people, uh, you know, are drawn to embodied cognition is because it says something right, because there is, in fact, all these sensory and motor interactions are at least associated with our abstract concepts. But this is not the debate. I think that most or well, many researchers would accept that literature at face value and show and, and say that, yes, all this information is stored with my concept. The debate is different. The debate is whether this is my concept. So whether my concept is, in fact, entirely consisting of those sensory and motor interaction. And the strong embodiment view says that that is in fact the case. And that I think view, this view, this, you know, exclusive view, I don't think is right. I think there are reasons to think that it's wrong. Why people go there, um, here's where you might think that dualism and primarily dualism, perhaps a little bit essentialism too, have something to say about that. So if you're a dualist, you have a problem. You have a problem because every behavior, every time I do this, this presents a huge mystery to you because for the dualist, um, it's my idea, my abstract mental state of a battle that presumably commands my very material arm to reach to the battle. And that is total nonsense because how is it possible for uh, immaterial uh, mental state to uh, exert causality over uh, a material entity? So that creates a huge dissonance and that's a problem. And if you're a cognitive scientist, that might create a, a, a problem to you as well. In reality, you shouldn't be disturbed by that because the computational theory of mind is not a dualist theory at all. But 
if you don't think about it carefully, you might be led to the to the to the dissonance. And embodied cognition solved the dissonance because it's telling you, listen, cognition doesn't really exist. There are no abstract mental states. It's all sensory and motor interactions. And per the research that I have described, people have no troubles recognizing sensory and motor interactions, identifying them with the material body. So now if you go to the embodied view, it's the material body that commands the material body, right? It's my sensory and motor notion of a cup that commands my hand. Matter commands matter, the dissonance is solved, everything is good. So um, I don't think this is something that uh, lay people necessarily will fall for, but if you think about the science, that certainly might seem like a viable solution to you. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and what about uh, neuroscience? Because it seems that nowadays uh, many news come out uh, after yeah. some papers get released and people really love to look at the different brain areas with different colors activated and things like that. Uh, so uh, why why do people like neuroscience and particularly fMRI with those with those scholars and so on showing different brain areas activated performing different tasks why is that so uh, alluring to people yeah and this too could so it's the same dissonance that I just described that actually can explain the same phenomenon and just in case you know to make it clear to to people who are joining us it it's it's a totally irrational uh, uh, reaction so uh, you know you you see people read newspapers right and saying mm -hmm. you know it was discovered that musician brains are different than non-musician brains and what's the news here why should there be any difference so, you know you hear that they're different because they play differently and the difference cannot align any other place rather than the brain right so mm -hmm. it, it's it's rather curious and in fact we know from research that it's not just that people are surprised but they also find brain explanations more satisfying than behavioral explanations mm -hmm. even when uh, in fact the behavior the explanations make no sense and, and they're circular and it's again the same dissonance that uh, is the the destiny of the dualist that can drive this because once again if you're a dualist you don't understand how this is possible you don't understand how cognition can can happen and by saying that it's your brain that's doing that. So if you're embodied cognition, you're saying cognition doesn't exist. If you're a neuroscientist, you're saying it's the material brain that is actually affecting and causing those behaviors. And that again solves your mystery and solves the dissonance. Essentialism might also have something to whisper here uh, in your ear because um, when people say, it's in the brain. Remember that essentialism suggests evidence. It's a way of thinking about innateness. And when you identify uh, psychological traits in the material brain, people interpret that as suggesting that this property is in fact innate in human because it provides evidence that is consistent with essentialism. Yeah. So people might uh, interpret information such as musician brains are different as evidence that maybe they were born this way, if it's in their brain, therefore perhaps they were born this way, and that perhaps adds to the significance that they attribute to the news. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> yeah. And so what about psychiatric disorders? Because that's another muddy topic, let's say. I mean, even defining mental disorders is not that easy because there are cultural elements as well. And yeah. uh, sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between, between them because there are many overlapping symptoms, for example. So, uh, but uh, here we are talking about how people think about those kinds of things. So how do people think and reason about psychiatric disorders? Entirely. Exactly. Uh, you're exactly right. So yes, this is indeed about our perception rather than um, about the etiology of the disorders themselves. And, um, here is where the actually the history here is, is quite painful because uh, at least in the U.S., so we know that psychiatric disorders are are associated with stigma, with distancing. Uh, people even attribute some danger to a, a person who, um, who who is suffering from from those conditions. And in an attempt to combat those conditions, uh, at least in the U.S., the Surgeon General decided to tell people, listen, these are actually brain disorders. It's a disease like all others, right? It's exactly like you know, Parkinson's, it's exactly like cancer, it's in the body with the, and the hope was that once people understand that this is a medical physical condition, that the stigma will go away. And it did not. And in some ways, it actually got worse. So what the research now shows is that people who, and even in fact, clinicians think that disorders that are in the brain uh, actually uh, elicit all kinds of negative attitudes. And in, and the question is why people react in this manner. Um, I think that again, it's the same mechanism that we identified before that explained that. So if people per essentialism assume that the essence is inborn, then if people are told that the disorder is now in the brain, they interpret that the disorder is in fact hereditary, that you know, you're born with that, it's your destiny, therefore the disorder is immutable. It's less likely to change even if you, you get therapy. It's only less likely to change by talk therapy because it doesn't, because you're also dualist, right? The talk therapy does not affect the, the material body. Uh, and it's this distinction that promotes pessimism and, and, and also promotes stigma because then, you know, if your essence, you're born with a different essence to mine, then uh, I, then it, it suggests some uh, uh, very profound differences be, difference between us. And in, we've done some research that suggests, indeed, that when you inform people about psychiatric disorder and tell them the disease is mani manifest in the brain, people indeed do jump to the conclusion that the disease is inborn um, and their stigma increases. So that um, unfortunately suggests that um, core knowledge uh, may in fact drive this misconception. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, just before I move on to the next topic, let me just ask you. So people, when they, when they see mental disorders associated with the brain in some way, they think then that they are innate, uh, to some extent at least. Do they also think that they are immutable? That is, that we can't really do anything to change those people? So in these experiments we did, uh, we presented people with uh, a patient and we told them this patient is diagnosed by a test and the test is either a brain test by which we are only asking 
you know, by telling people if the person has the disorder, then you expect the brain to show a spike in activation. Or if there is the disorder, then in a behavioral test, you're going to respond faster or slower, and we're giving people all the detail. The idea here is that all the brain test is giving you is whether or not the person has a disorder. It provides no additional information about, you know, perhaps if you knew what the area in the brain is, you can infer some more about the mechanism, nothing. All you know in both cases is exactly the same, except for in one condition, you can link it to the body, and in the other condition, you can't if you're a dualist because all you know is in behavior. And what we find is that when the test is diagnosed, or well, when the disorder is diagnosed by a brain test, people are significantly more likely to say that the disorder is innate. They tend to think about it as more immutable, uh, and they also tend to show more negative attitudes toward that disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and since you, you are basically a linguist or do a lot of work in linguistics, uh, let's talk just a little bit about one particular disorder, dyslexia. So, uh, how do things work there and also how, pe uh, how do people tend to think or and reason about dyslexia, that kind of condition, and, uh, and how, they, how do they think about people that suffer from it? Yeah. So, there is what the science tells us and there is what people think and they are not aligned. Yeah. What the science tells us is that dyslexia is a hereditary brain disorder that impairs reading ability. This, uh, dyslexia is a heterogeneous condition. Dyslexia can arise from all kinds of reasons. In fact, the definition of dyslexia, there are many definitions in fact, but the definitions that people are used to diagnose dyslexia uh, are ones that are done by exclusion, by exclusion rather than by inclusion. So they, they do not specify a specific cause, but rather they're saying, you can't read even though you're intelligent, you know, you have opportunity to learn to read and, and so forth. So it stands to reason that people will have dyslexia for all kinds of reasons. So it's not just a single disorder. However, the most frequent symptom that one sees in dyslexia has to do with the mapping of letters to sounds. Mm -hmm. So um, there is a lot of research that shows that when skilled readers read, they are doing what in the US we call phonics. You are, uh, you know, that when you see the word dog, you know that D, D is a D uh, and O is an O and so forth. You put them together and that's how you get the phonological form of dog. And that is an integral part of your reading. People with dyslexia have huge difficulties with that. So when you give them a novel word that they have never seen before, they will have troubles decoding it. Mm -hmm. They also have problems with spoken language processing, which perhaps is less, uh, less familiar to people. So they have problems with awareness of the phonological structure of the word. What is blog without the first sound? You're supposed to say log. People with dyslexia will have troubles. They have problems even in speech perception, um, very subtle problems. So they don't have hearing problem, but they have problems in identifying uh, speech. And in fact, some of those problems you can see in infants who come at, uh, who are at risk for dyslexia because their families uh, uh, have uh, dyslexia running in the family. So the most, so well, there are all kinds of reasons to dyslexia. The most common problem is in mapping, have to do with phonology in some way and in, with speech perception. This is not what, pe what people think. When you ask lay people what happens in dyslexia, um, first, 
there is still denial of dyslexia even in public figures. So there are still, even among decision makers, people who publicly say that dyslexia doesn't exist, which is quite concerning. Even teachers who are in training to, you know, or, or uh, to teach kids how to read think that dyslexia primarily is a visual problem, that it primarily concerns letter reversal. Uh, some of, in some of the research, people say that it's not even a reading disorder. And the question is, why do people have those misconceptions? Of course, there can be many reasons. People have know that reading requires learning, so it makes sense that they, if they think about dyslexia as a serious condition, they don't think that it arises from that. But then that doesn't quite explain why they think that dyslexia doesn't affect the brain, right? It's one thing to say that dyslexia is, if it's a severe disorder, it's going to be visual, but why should it be not a brain disorder? Um, and it's here again that it's possible that um, core knowledge might give rise to some of the confusion. Uh, if you think about disorder as a serious condition that is innate, then uh, mechanisms that have to do with cognition do not seem to be like a good explanation for, for such a hereditary disorder. On the other hand, if you know that the problem is really in the cognitive aspect, then you have troubles understanding that it's actually a brain disorder that is innate. So together, uh, these two conditions, these two core principles might explain both why people have these particular uh, misconceptions and also why they're opposite to the misconceptions that you have about psychiatric disorder. So when, again, this is not the, in people's view, many psychiatric disorders are associated with emotions, which may or may not be correct. Mm -hmm. It stands to reason, therefore, that people will jump to the conclusion that those conditions are innate and immutable. Mm -hmm. For dyslexia, people think about it as more of a cognitive problem that is associated with knowledge. It therefore stands to reason that the people either say this cannot possibly be a brain in a disorder, or if they do, they think about it, it's really a sensory disorder. So um, again, I think that this it, it's an interesting mirroring of the uh, dichotomy that we see between thoughts and feelings that uh, uh, we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's just talk about one last topic before we finish the interview that is somewhat different from the others, but it's very interesting, the, the topic of uh, how dualism and essentialism applies to a particular idea, the idea of the afterlife that is, yeah. that is present in probably all cultures. And that's already interesting because that points toward it being a human universal, right? And, and that's something that, that we're also going to touch on here. Uh, but then... And it's also associated many times with religion and things like that. So uh, what are some of the principles or ideas stemming from core knowledge that give rise to these general cultural idea or, or, uh, or probably even not that cultural because it might be also innate or people might be predisposed to think about the afterlife, uh, about the, these kind of ideas. Yeah, so it, it does look like uh, ideas about afterlife are quite general across cultures. It, it certainly doesn't look like, um, in fact, uh, the psychologist Jesse Baring has shown that um, even people who 
do not believe in uh, explicitly in in afterlife actually show that they have troubles rejecting the notion that afterlife exists when you put them under time pressure. He documented beliefs in afterlife in four-year-old children in, in Florida um, and, and across cultures. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Chudik and colleagues demonstrated beliefs in uh, you know, uh, transference of the mind to other creatures, even in societies in which you don't speak about the mind per se. So it doesn't look like this is something that is due to institutionalized religion at all. Um, however, uh, the question is why this arises. And Jesse Baring's original explanation is basically uh, the reason why you think that the dead keeps thinking is because you cannot um, envision the notion of not thinking. You can envision the notion of not seeing, you can close your eyes, you can perhaps not hear, but you can't envision what it means not to think, and therefore you are, are drawn to the conclusion that it's thinking that's going to transfer to the afterlife and not, um, and, and not the sensory and motor capacities and the physical capacities. Dualism obviously presents a, a very viable explanation of that, and in fact, now that we see that um, in, that dualism and afterlife present the mirror image of each other, so in fact, it's the very same principles that explain why you don't think why you think that ideas cannot be present in the beginning of life, why ideas cannot be innate, that explain why ideas cannot uh, persist in afterlife. Uh, in it, I'm sorry, it's the same ideas that, that explain why ideas are present in the afterlife. Um, uh, and, and the reason for that is because ideas are immaterial. In fact, we've run some of these experiments and we showed that in the same materials in which we have demonstrated that people think about those ideas as are not likely to be innate, for those same uh, uh, ideas, people also say that they will persist in the afterlife. And the tendency to do so correlated significantly with the material, perceived materiality of these uh, properties. So we ask another group of participants to rate those traits for materiality. The more material a psychological trait is, the less likely it is to transfer to the afterlife. So um, our explanation is that it's really dualism, um, not the lack of imagination that, that makes you believe in the afterlife. Essentialism, however, may have something to say there as well, because when you look at the cross-cultural beliefs, if it were only dualism, you would think about the afterlife as entirely devoid if, of any material uh, manifestation, and that's not the case. So in Mexico, in the Day of the Dead, people think that you need to bring food to the dead, right? And um, often when cultures think about reincarnation, the dead requires certain, or the soul requires certain medium to manifest itself, a certain bird, um, man's soul can move to another man's soul, not to a woman. Um, my, uh, when Emma Cohen and colleagues asked people to think about the transference of the spirit, people said that there must be a specific um, object to which the stone that, that to which the spirit will attach a stone or, or a plant this doesn't make sense from the point of view of dualism you know if the soul is immaterial and if the mind is immaterial why should it care about this material manifestation 
It also doesn't explain why my father-in-law, for instance, my daughter always buy her clothes on consignment and my father-in-law says, no, it's, you know, the dead contaminates those clothes and it doesn't make sense at all. Essentialism explains all those beliefs because our notion of the self is really, it's a dual notion of the self. On the one hand, we have it coming from dualism as um, the immaterial uh, being that's distinct from the body. But then we also have a biological notion of the self that is embodied. And uh, I think it's these two beliefs, that the conflict, I'm sorry, the conflicting um, uh, manifestation of thinking about the afterlife are explained by those conflicting principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so Dr. Berendt, let's end the interview here. Just before I mention the book again, would you like to tell people what are some of the best places on the internet if they want to find your work? Um, Amazon, so the, the book itself, well, you can find it on Amazon, you can find it on Oxford, it's uh, published by Oxford. Um, you can check out my website from some recent publications and thank you for the opportunity to talk about this with you and for the excellent questions they'll always. And for doing this uh, channel, which is I listen to often and I'm, I'm very much impressed by it. Okay, thank you so much for the kind words. And guys, again, the book is The Blind Storyteller, how we reason about human nature. If you are in quarantine, then uh, then go to Amazon to the link I will be leaving in, in the description box of the interview. If by the time I release the interview, this coronavirus crisis is over, then run and buy it. It's a very interesting book. I, I read it and it, I found it amazing and very well researched. So Dr. Berendt, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. And it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Ricardo. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I've been putting out regular interviews with top academics and intellectuals from around the world and a variety of fields. And now to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help. And and we also have links in the description box to PayPal, and other places if you want to make donations there. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. Finally, I would like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Jana Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, and Dan Demetrio, Robert Windiger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Max Belby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, my producers Isar Weber, Rosie, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Eleolin Osborne, Dr. Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Caetano, and Matthew Lavender. And finally, my executive producer, Michel Ruzieski. Thank you for all.